0: There's a colossal fault line in Sergei Rachmaninoff's life. It's the year 1917, the year of the Russian Revolution. Rachmaninoff was 44. He left Russia with his family in December and never returned. Despite Rachmaninoff's hostility to the new Bolshevik regime, it wasn't simply a case of shaking the dust off his feet. Exile was an intensely painful experience for Rachmaninoff. He had a deep love for his country, its folk culture and music, its landscapes, its church music and ritual. The following year, in 1918, Rachmaninoff began a new career as a concert pianist at the age of 45. For quite a few people he became quite simply the greatest pianist of the 20th century. But there was a huge cost to his composing. The busy international timetable of a concert pianist left him with all too few opportunities and all too little energy for sustained composing. The number of original compositions declined sharply in the exile years, and strikingly, there's almost no significant vocal music, apart from the choral orchestral arrangements of three Russian folk songs, and even those were sketched before Rachmaninoff left Russia. As with his fellow Russian exile Stravinsky, Russian was the exiled language of my heart. Stravinsky turned instead to setting Latin and English. It seems however that Rachmaninoff couldn't. That sense of loss, and particularly the loss of a native Russian audience that would understand his language settings directly, that was huge. Now that sense of the pain of exile had to be expressed in songs without words. It took Rachmaninoff nearly ten years after the revolution and his flight from Russia to complete another major work. This was his fourth piano concerto. It begins bravely enough. years Rachmaninoff's fourth piano concerto has endured something close to a happy slapping from critics. A lot of it is unfair, I think. There are beautiful pages. And yet you can't banish the recurring criticism that it doesn't quite live up to that very promising beginning. And certainly it was a flop at its premiere in 1927. Rachmaninoff made extensive revisions, but he never really managed to save it. Still, he didn't quite give up and in nineteen thirty one you begin to sense a breakthrough Rachmaninoff composed his variations on the theme of corelli for solo piano in that year and revised his second piano sonata he also acquired a new home a villa at senna near lucerne in switzerland and this seems to have been a very positive move creatively At the beginning of 1934, Rachmaninoff learned that the Soviet ban on his music had been lifted, and something lifted in his own soul, too. A real masterpiece follows the rhapsody on a theme of Paganini. It's really a brilliant, deliciously imaginative, one-movement piano concerto. The premiere of the Paganini Rhapsody in America in 1934 was a huge success, at last. Invigorated by this, Rachmaninoff devoted his next bit of substantial free time to serious work on his most ambitious exile project yet, a third symphony. Rachmaninoff's third symphony begins, like the first two symphonies, with a motto theme. You can understand Rachmaninoff looking to previous success to embolden himself at the beginning of a major undertaking like this. And all three of these symphonic motto themes have a strong flavour of religious chant. In the second symphony, it's deep down in the cellos and basses, like a Russian bass voice, such an important colour in Russian religious choral music. As with Symphony Number no. 2, the Third Symphony's chant motto theme moves within very narrow intervals, just like traditional Russian Orthodox chant. But the scoring shows a new daring. We have a solo clarinet, plus a high stopped horn that's muted with the hand, plus a muted solo cello. You need to know the orchestra pretty well to know that something like that will work. It's a ghostly, plaintive sound, Russian chant heard, as it were, from a distance. It's been pointed out, in fact, that there's a strong resemblance here to a defiant figure in Borodin's opera, Prince Igor. Now, This is a work Rechmaninov knew very well, he conducted it several times during his Russian years, and the resemblance to that motto theme is striking. Prince Igor is summoning the people to a defense of holy Russia in time of war. Well, war was on the horizon in the mid-1930s. Rachmaninoff's travels across Europe and from his vantage point in Switzerland must have made him well aware of what was stirring in 1935-6. to Those were the years in which he completed the symphony. Whether that resemblance to Prince Igor is intentional or unconscious, It's striking that Rachmaninoff's first thoughts should have been the defense of his exiled homeland. In the Third Symphony, however, the distant home thoughts are resolutely thrown off almost immediately. That very short introduction leads, after a pause, straight into a brusque allegro. For a moment, it seems, the distant motto theme is forgotten, but throughout the Symphony No. 3, that figure, and its possible identification with Russia, keeps returning, and in some remarkably original ways. The middle section of the first movement is unusually violent. As a climax builds, the chant motto is hinted at on trumpets, then blared out defiantly by trumpets and trombones. It provokes a startlingly anguished crescendo. end of the first movement is strangely desolate or resigned. It's a kind of winding down as the motto creeps back in subdued on low strings. It is, as I said, the ending of the movement, yet it sounds as though issues are still unresolved. The association with Russia is underlined in a different way at the start of the Central Second Movement. The motto theme is called out vocally by horn, more a mezzo voice now, with strummed chords underneath on harp. For Russian nationalists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, this sound had strong associations with the Russian bard, preparing to relate his story in song. Just a few bars later, that develops into a full-throated, aspiring violin song. That's first and second violins combined. Yet the contours are clearly derived from that chant motto. Some gorgeous touches of colour there, particularly those trilling low flutes in the background. It's so typical of Rachmaninoff's liberated orchestral ear in this symphony. The suggestion of Russian storytelling, those fantastic fairy tales that are so much part of the folk culture, accounts perhaps for the unusual form of this movement. It starts as a pensive slow movement that, somewhat surprisingly, transforms itself into an airborne scherzo. Just when we think that must be a new movement, a third movement perhaps, there comes another surprise. The music fades back into the original slow meditation. It's almost like a story within a story. The transition is masterly. Suddenly it seems we're back in the melancholic bardic music from the beginning. Yet where exactly did the change happen? It's so seamless. And on the subject of orchestral colour, listen out for the wonderful use of the celeste, rather like a toy piano, a kind of child's version of Rachmaninoff's own instrument. The Third Symphony is full of surprise changes like that. People listening to the symphony for the first time may well conclude at this point that we've left the slow movement behind and are now into a fully-fledged scherzo. This all makes the form a little confusing, perhaps, when heard for the first time. But this is where Rachmaninoff's use of the motto is so helpful. At those points where the form seems to be a little confusing at first hearing, the motto theme reminds us of the underlying connections. The end of the second movement, for instance, is remarkably close to the end of the first. So bringing back the motto is also bringing us back to the emotional theme of the Third Symphony, Russia. I should point out Rachmaninoff's comments, or lack of them, on this matter. When his sister-in-law, Sofia Satina, pointed out the specifically Russian character of this symphony, Rachmaninoff just smiled but he was normally very tight-lipped on big emotive issues. Stravinsky described his appearance on the platform as six and a half feet of scowl, so a smile could in context be seen as a kind of generous concession, a way of saying you're on the right track. The finale certainly causes problems for listeners hearing the symphony for the first time. It starts as though we're now in the territory of relatively conventional rejoicing, but you may ask, after that ending of the second movement, How exactly did we arrive at this happy ending? (laughs) A surprise, somewhat unexpected, happy ending. But Russian composers and novelists have a long tradition of ambiguous happy endings. It isn't long before the questioning, if not downright subversive, elements begin to creep back in. In the middle of the finale, Rachmaninoff does what many 19th century Russian composers of symphonies did notoriously, and particularly when it seems they were running out of ideas. Rachmaninoff starts a fugue on the outlines of the first theme. It's in a faster tempo and a minor key, but the fugal lines keep crossing over like a pianist's hands crossing, and the blurring of the counterpoint that results does create a slight element of unease. Rachmaninoff's use of the motto theme, often disguised, is especially subtle in this last movement. There's one moment I particularly like. Near the end, Rachmaninoff gives a surprisingly light, fresh, new-sounding theme to the solo flute. It was almost certainly inspired by the playing of the Philadelphia Orchestra's legendary William Kincaid. It was the Philadelphia who gave the premiere of the symphony in 1936. As I said, it sounds new. But listen to the strings underneath. They're playing something very old and familiar. The motto theme, or should we now call it the Russia theme. America on the flute, the new world, Russia, the old world underneath on the strings. Intriguing. The premiere of the Third Symphony in America was not, alas, a success. But when the Symphony was first heard in Moscow, just after Rachmaninoff's death in 1943, its reception was little short of ecstatic. Of course, critical reactions in Stalin's Soviet Union were usually designed with an ear to what the great leader and teacher might himself be thinking. But there's something about these expressions of delight and praise that strikes me as genuine. Perhaps Rachmaninoff critics were, after all, delighted to welcome back a great Russian symphonist to the fold, if only after his death, and in the process to score a few points over those cloth-eared Western critics. But also, perhaps, like Sofia Satina, those critics heard something distinctly Russian in this music, a song of exile and of love.